first day on the job. <laughs> All right. I wanted to mention something um, <clears throat> that's coming up in July, if you were not aware of it. But this is the, uh, the Vineyard Regional Conference. Um, that's, it's this year. It's from the 12th through the 14th, which is a Tuesday through a Thursday and of July, yes. Which um, they pretty much have to do to be able to get the pastors and so forth. You can't really do them on weekends, so they've typically always done them during the middle of the week. But th these are wonderful opportunities to really go hear a bunch of great speakers, meet a lot of people from vineyards all over the Mid-Atlantic, um, and hear some great worship. It's always uh, fantastic. So if you are interested, we've got some brochures around. Uh, if you can't find one, let me know, and I will make sure I get one to you. Uh, you can also go out on the web and find it. Um, the only thing that is really uh, a, down, a downer at the moment is that I think, well, we're not sure, but it sounds like the hotel, there is one hotel that they can get a you can get a discount rate at. It may or may not be full. <laughs> there was... Um, some dis difference of opinion yesterday. I haven't checked it, but there are a lot of other hotels in Virginia Beach, so you shouldn't have one trouble finding one that's not so far away from the uh, the church, which is where it's being held at. So, would strongly encourage you to go if you're not. It's just it's a really great time. So, all right. Well, let's pray. Well, Father, I thank you for uh, for your words from the Book of Revelation, and so I just pray, Father, that. Uh, that your words would be my words today and that they would uh, penetrate hearts and minds. That everything uh, that leaves my mouth would be true. And anything that is not would just be easily and quickly forgotten. So we give you thanks and praise and I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so we are now... Uh, out of chapter one, we're into chapter two this week, but just as a little bit of a recap, as far as what we talked about uh, last week, the big idea for really that, that um, third portion or the last half of the chapter is the idea that John is commissioned by Jesus to write this vision that he's about to have. And um, it's given to him by Christ, who is the ruler over the church and the one who really takes care of it. And so we, we pointed to several insights that uh, were part of this. First of all, the idea that Jesus is divine, right? Second, that uh, we are most often in the best position to hear from God when we're engaged in worship, that that is when we are, our hearts are closest, and so we can really uh, sort of experience God the best in that circumstance. The third point was that we, we really feel this tension that they were clearly feeling in the first century between living, into this, living in this very difficult place with all this persecution that's occurring um, and yet holding on to the hope of God that everything's going to work out in the end. Uh, I was talking with somebody not too long ago um, <clears throat> that we were going through this class. I think it was you. We were going through this class on um, the kingdom of God. And so one of the things that sort of the subjects that came up was this idea of um, millennialism, 
you know, and there are some people that are premillennial and some people that are postmillennial, and you've got the pre and post and mid tribulation folks and all that. Well, I was listening to a lecture, and the uh, the man on that was giving the lecture said that he was a panmillennial. I was like, "What the heck? I've never heard that before." And then he said, "Yeah, I just believe everything's going to pan out in the end." <laughs> and I thought, "I'm stealing that. I like that idea because I've never been one that's get that has gotten all tangled up in what's going to happen in the end because we don't control it anyway." And you know, what God's going to do, God's going to do. And so there isn't any real point in working in worrying about it. But this idea that, you know, right now, even we have to deal with this tension of, you know, bad things happening and, and all of that, and yet holding on to that promise that God is going to make everything pan out in the end. And then finally, we do receive hope from this idea that Jesus is coming back, but then there's also that sense that we do have his presence with us now. And if you remember, I read the letter from the woman who wrote back to her church that when her husband was going through this battle with ALS, how the church gathered around them and supported that couple and were really the hands and feet of Jesus to them as they went through this really hard time. <clears throat> so that was last week. Now, before I really get into this week, um, I had this idea of something that, I, that, that sort of ties in with um, what we're going to start talking about as it relates to the, what Jesus is saying to these churches in these seven letters. <clears throat> and there's a brief episode, if you read um, C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia, and it's in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are telling the children who, are, who have come into this somewhat magical kingdom uh, about who Aslan is. And all they know is that he's this mysterious, somewhat frightening Christ figure. Uh, and he's rumored to be on the move, on the prowl, right? And so uh, it, the, the dialogue starts out with Lucy, who's the youngest, going... Is, uh, is he a man? Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of a great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh said Susan, who was the older sister. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then is he safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so 
that image, I think, is important for us to keep in mind as we go through you know, what Jesus is writing to these churches as well as what we'll read further on in Revelation. Because I think there's a tendency to, to get caught up in one place or the other. And I think where we land most often is, is Jesus as good and kind, which he certainly is. But he's also these other things too. He's going to be part of the judgment. And so understanding that he is good is important because in the midst of these, he is really speaking in some cases in some very harsh language to the churches. And so it's good, I think, to keep in mind that there's two sides to Jesus. He's both powerful and present. And so let's move on now to... Um, to really start to talk about chapter two. And so in this, these first seven verses, um, what we start to find are these messages that have been dictated to John about the seven churches. And this little map gives you some idea. You can see where Patmos is marked off the coast. And then uh, I think as I mentioned before, the letters sort of follow a path. You know, So if you were gonna go geographically, it would just kind of go around in a U shape. And so every church is charged to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, okay? So it's pretty likely that even though each church is getting a specific message, they're supposed to listen to what the other messages are too because those same things could befall them at some point. And so this message to Ephesus probably comes to them first, not only from a geographic standpoint, but because Ephesus was the leading city in Asia, it was the province, and it served as the official residence of the Roman proconsul to Asia. And so uh, it was the provincial capital, and it had a population of about 250,000 people. So it was a big city for its time. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was a seaport city. It was a center of business, religion, and civic life. Um, and it also was probably the center of paganism in the first century world. And the reason for that was that one of the things that was in the city was the temple to Artemis. And <clears throat> the, Artemis was the mother goddess. And, and so there was a, uh, a massive temple complex there. This is not an actual photograph, by the way. Um, but there were, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so big and massive. And um, it actually featured thousands of priests and priestesses that attended to the temple. And um, had a, there was a booming business there related to the worship of, of Artemis. There was also, in addition to this worship of Artemis, you had emperor worship. And we talked about that before too, the, the worship of the Roman emperor. And so it was very strong in Ephesus. And so if you were a Christian in Ephesus, you faced a lot of pressure to worship the emperor as well. And then... On top of all of that, the city was also a center for a lot of occult 
and magical practices. And so, you know, you had in the first century these apostate Jews, or these are Jews who have rejected Judaism, all right, in large measure. And so they were starting to accommodate themselves to pagan ideologies, heathen practices, um, some occult wisdom thrown in there, some of the rabbinical lore from ancient days, some mystery religion. Um, and then if you kind of combined all that in a pot and stirred in a little bit of Christianity, uh, that's what they kind of did. And <clears throat> it was truly probably a spawning ground for a lot of these the heresies that were making their way through this area at this time, of which the letter addresses several of these, and we're going to talk about them a little bit later. But this was also, all, most of these things, or a lot of this, was what sort of got into um, this idea of what later became Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism started before Christianity, but it really flourished in the second century. And so a lot of what's going on here finally found its way into what ultimately became the Gnostic uh, religion, if you will. So you've got all of these different religious elements going on in the city, okay? And you, you sort of couple that with what was obviously a lot of cultural pressure to, to be a part of them. And so that helps explain why, what we'll read in this letter, Jesus is commending the believers that are there in Ephesus because they've stood strong for their faith in the midst of everything else that's going on here. And they've been able to resist, to a large measure, the false teachers. So let's actually look at the text with that kind of as our uh, warm-up. So this is Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. <clears throat> I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> So let's break this down a little bit and look at some of these verses independently. So first of all is this idea of the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the expression that begins this, the, you know, these are the words of, it only occurs, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, like six or seven times in the book of Revelation and it precedes these, these letters. But in the, if you look at the entire New Testament, it occurs over 250 times. And um, it's sort of always related to prophecy. So if you're going to be hearing some kind of prophecy, 
this phrase, these are the words of, typically falls within there somehow. And it's really showing that Jesus, in this case, is sort of assuming the role of God, speaking prophetically to the churches, telling them this is what's going to happen. And he's, he's holding these stars, and he's walking among the lampstands, which demonstrates that he's in control, right? He's in sovereign control um, of all of this, that he is the ruler of all things. And so despite the depravity that was within Ephesus, as we talked about, Jesus established his church there. And in this message, he's assuring the angel of that church, congregation, that he is going to uphold and protect those churches that he has ordained, right? Okay, moving on. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. And so he's commending them. He's saying, you guys have, you know, I've, I know what you've been through. Um, it, the deeds he really defines as both this labor or hard work that they've been doing, and then second, their perseverance or their endurance in doing these things. And so the hard work that they've been doing is trying to maintain their doctrinal purity in the midst of all of this other um, stuff that's going on, all these other religious practices that are occurring. And it, it's saying that this church does not tolerate wicked or evil people, but really looks very critically at someone who comes in to teach or to talk about one of these other faiths. So in that sense, they're like the Bereans that we find in Acts, right? That they're commended because they study the scriptures. They want to make sure they understand that if somebody says something, that it's true. So they go back and they look and they make sure, well, he's really saying the same thing in, in many respects to the church in Ephesus, that they've been very good about making sure that what is taught is truth. And so uh, where it mentions apostle, this is really sort of a, a representative or messenger from ascending church. So it's not apostle in the sense that we think about him with Jesus, but more like a missionary, really, who's gone off from one of these other churches and uh, is spreading that particular gospel around. And so they've heard some of these folks come in and speak. And, um, you know, they found that their message has been false. And the reason that, that this whole idea of doctrinal purity is important is because if you look at it from a practical level, bad theology can hurt people. You know, if you've got, you know, a theology that's incorrect, people can get hurt from that. And so you, that's why it's so important to stay with what's true. And I think it's, it's interesting to note that if you look at all of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches in the New Testament, the letter to the church in Ephesus is the only one that he does not mention any sort of doctrinal correction. He doesn't say anything about their, uh, what they believe. There was no issues in terms of what this church believed and what they taught. So it sort of backs up what is said here. And so it's been exhausting, you know, to try to maintain this. I would imagine there's lots of pressure. You know, you know how peer pressure acts today. And you can imagine in a city like this with all these other faiths uh, and religious practices going on that 
resisting that and trying to stay true to what they were, what they really believed was hard work. And so that's what, what he's commending them for. But, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it because they've been battling and battling and battling to make sure that their doctrine stays correct. But in doing all of that, their hearts have kind of grown cold and they don't love anymore. It's, you know, this indictment is, is against the condition of their hearts. It's not against any particular recipient of love. And so it's likely that love for both God and people has diminished as they have been going through this time. And usually if there's a lack of love for people, it's indicative of a, of a deeper spiritual issue. Something else is going on in this. And, and so you have to realize that if you have truth, but you don't have love, really all you have is kind of a cold demonstration of power. And if you have love without truth, it really ceases to be genuine. And both of those can be relational disasters. And not so much relationally maybe, but you know this idea of, of holding on to something and being able to being really excited about it at the beginning, we see it so often in our own lives, right? We just have to have um, whatever it is, a new Kindle or a new tablet of some kind or a new phone. And, you know, that we just were pining for it. Oh, my gosh, it doesn't come out till September. I don't think I can wait that long. And so, you know, so we've got this buildup of excitement, right? And then we finally get it. And then, you know, now that we have it, that excitement sort of begins to diminish a little bit. And then eventually it kind of just goes away entirely. It's just, you know, it's our new phone, but it's not so much new anymore because something else has probably come out in between time. So, you know, that now something else has replaced that. And so we just kind of jump from one thing to the other. And uh, forsaking you know, that, that love that just isn't there anymore. So then he says this, consider how far you have fallen. One other point, actually, I want to go back. This idea of you forsaken the love you had at first. A lot of times I think this is interpreted as meaning Jesus. I don't think that's what John means here. I think he means love in a general sense. That this church, as I said, who, who've been so focused on getting things right, have stopped loving in general. The love they had at first was that love that, you know, when you see somebody, you know, who's new to the church, you're like, oh, hey, how you doing? It's great to have you here, you know, so on and so forth. And, you know, then if that grows cold, then you don't do that anymore. So... I'm fairly certain that that's what this is talking about because you hear this interpreted a lot as their first love, meaning they've forsaken Jesus. And I don't think that's true here. So, all right, move on to this one. So now he's, <clears throat> he's coming back and he's commanding this church to remember, to repent, and to return to what they did at first. 
And it's fairly likely that John is using an event that's going on or has been going on in the city of Ephesus to help them remember this. Now, in the city, the, the, the city's coastline was constantly changing because there was a river called the River Caster, and it would bring all of this sediment down from uh, the mountains, I suppose. So there were these sand and pebbles that were constantly coming in and filling up the harbor. And so there were, it was going to be turned into some kind of a marsh, but it no longer could um, have ships come in there. And so the city was in this danger of actually being having the sea kind of go away from it, which you can imagine as a seaport and a place of commerce would have been disastrous to the city. And so about two centuries prior to this, there had been a massive engineering project that had, um, had cleaned out, dredged out the harbor, and had gotten it back to the point where ships could come in. All right. But now we're in the middle of the first century, and the whole thing is starting to happen again. The harbor's filling up with silt, and um, if they're going to retain any of their uh, stature as a seaport, the, the citizens are going to have to repent of their negligence in keeping the harbor clear and do the first work again, which means go back and dredge the thing up. And so around A.D. 64, they finally began to do this again. Um, and so once they got it cleared out, they were able, it was able to stay as a seaport for years. Um, but then they stop doing it. And if you go there now, do you know where the sea is rel relative to where Ephesus is? It's six miles away. Not a seaport anymore. It's now, what was the seaport is now this grassy plain. And that's what this, these hundreds and hundreds of years have done as this has filled up. And so this whole sequence that John is talking about here is really important. Remember, repent, and return. You know, remember how God's Spirit had once worked in their hearts to produce the love that they had. And then change or repent the behavior, which just means to turn and do something else, to begin to, to love again. And then finally, um, let that love become part of their passion for truth. Right? You can't just have the passion for truth without the love. And there's a little bit of a, a threat. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. This is effectively God's judgment on this church. And uh, if they actually capitulate and they don't love and the doctrine sort of implodes, uh, they're going to lose their identity the, the identity of their church. And um, what's interesting about it is it's not because they stop pursuing the truth, it's simply because they stop loving. One commentator said that without love, the congregation really ceases to be a church. I think that's true today. But, Jesus says, you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so, well, who are these Nicolaitans? Well, 
they're a group of false teachers that are closely connected to the, the other cults of Balaam and Jezebel, which are mentioned here in Re Revelation. And they're trying to redefine the Christian faith effectively um, and possibly even profit from it. And so they really are trying to, you know, to get them to come along with them into this culture of idolatry and immorality and deceit and false worship. Now what's interesting is in Greek, the word um, Nicholas, the Greek word Nicholas means conqueror of the people. Okay. And so then in the third of the seven messages that John writes about here, he mentions this other group of heretics in Pergamum. And he calls them the followers of Balaam. Well, guess what Balaam means in Hebrew? Conqueror of the people. And so John's making kind of a wordplay here where he's linking this one group, the Nicolaitans, with the Balaamites who are down in Pergamum who are causing the same thing to happen. And in fact, as we'll see um, in verses 14 and 15, he really is telling us that their doctrines are the same thing. And then if you uh, look even further and you sort of examine the documents that tell us about this cult of Jezebel, their teaching was exactly the same in all three. Their doctrine was identical. And so what seems to be happening is that there was one particular heresy that was making the rounds during this time um, that was really trying to, to seduce the Christians to get away from uh, what they were believing in and, and to go into this uh, practice of idolatry and fornication and all that sort of thing. And so just like Paul had said, these wolves had arisen within the Christian community and were attempting to devour the sheep. So, moving on. And then finally, Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so now we sort of see what happened in Genesis coming full circle. The tree is no longer off limits, right, as it had been uh, withheld from Adam and Eve because of their sin. Now it's kind of come back. So what does all this what does all this mean? Now, that's what it says. Now, what does it mean? Um, <clears throat> I think, first of all, what it's saying is that our deeds are important, including, you know, the hard work of contending for tr the truth of the faith. And, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to argue that the culture that we live in now is really not all that different than what we see in Ephesus in the first century. You know, there were all of these different religious voices and they were all claiming to possess absolute truth and they all demanded this uncritical allegiance to what they believed. And so what it says is that we can't afford to assume doctrinal purity of any potential church leader. You really have got to examine what someone is saying. So, you know, the, this, the latest, greatest internet preacher or conference, you know, speaker or whatever. Not to badmouth that, but we really need to look and see, okay, what exactly are they saying? You know, let's look at everything that they're saying and, and find out, is this really truth? 
So it's important to do that. Because like I said, <clears throat> it's more than just a theological issue. It's that bad theology can hurt people. And so we really have to make sure that we don't drift off into that. Secondly, <clears throat> Jesus reminds his people of the absolute need to retain biblical love in our pursuit of the truth. And as I was thinking about this, you know, there are many things in life, <clears throat> such as our strengths, that if you take them too far, they can become a weakness. Consider the mission statement of a well-known university. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. <coughs> now, when it was founded, <coughs> this university employed exclusively Christian professors. It emphasized character formation above everything else. It placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news. Every diploma issued from this particular university read Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, which means truth for Christ and the church. Now you've probably heard of this school. It's Harvard University. <clears throat> and what happened was only about 80 years after it was founded, there were a group of New England pastors that sensed that uh, Harvard had drifted a little too far away from this motto. And so they were very concerned by the secularization that they saw going on at Harvard. So they approached a wealthy philanthropist who shared their concerns. Well, his name was Elihu Yale. And he financed their efforts in 1718 and they called the college Yale University. And Yale's motto was not just veritas, which means truth, but lux et veritas, which means light and truth. Now today, Harvard and Yale's legacy of academic excellence are still intact, but neither school resembles what their founders intended. At the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Muller, former president of Johns Hopkins, bluntly stated, the bad news is the university has become godless. And so the history of these two schools really provide us examples of how you can be contending for one thing, in this case academic excellence, while forfeiting something else, which was their Christian roots and the actual mission that they were founded upon. And so Jesus condemns this pursuit of truth when it forfeits love. And there, there is a way to have both. You can contend for the truth without forfeiting love. Just as these schools, had they chosen to, could have continued to offer excellent education and met the mission statement of bringing God to the world. And it goes back to this idea that we talk about all the time about hating the sin, but loving the sinner. And not getting judgmental, 
when we're faced with someone who may not be the perfect example of a Christian. And I think it's helpful when we're doing this to really stop and think about like levels of belief maybe. You know, does someone believe at a certain level <clears throat> some of the core things of Christianity? And if they don't believe <clears throat> in some of the more minor things, so what? Now, some, of, some may be aghast at that, but I don't think it matters. I think if people share at least the core convictions of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what Jesus did, of the fact that he is the only way to heaven and so forth, then we can disagree on some of the other more minor things. And so we've got to be able um, <clears throat> to sit down and have these doctrinal discussions and, and allow them to only be um, as charged as they have to be, right? And so when we separate, separate what's really primary from what's secondary, it helps us to promote that, and I think it's good for us to think about that if we're ever having discussions with someone else. And then finally, <clears throat> repentance is essential for believers who have, uh, have forfeited love. Well, Jesus clearly commands the church to repent, but he also challenges them to remember what they were about when they started and to go back to that. And I think if we, if we need, sometimes repentance or this idea of repenting, it's, just, it's one of those well-worn out religious words. And I think that if we, we almost hear it so much, we kind of forget what it's about. That it's not so much, you know, it, yes, it's about maybe stopping a particular behavior, but it's more about going back, turning around, and doing that which you were doing to begin with. Um, there's a great story in the book of Joshua. If you will recall that, it's in chapter 4, about Israel crossing over the Jordan River. And then once they did, they set up stones. And these stones were there to help them remember what they had just done, right? So that in the, in the past, or in the future, <coughs> They would, if they looked upon those stones or they remembered the act of setting up those stones, they would remember how good God was to them, that he allowed them to go across that. And so there's a marker mentally that they can go back to if they ever start to drift. And I think we really need to do the same thing. And how many of us can sit and recall events that occurred along, along our Christian journey? where, you know, God intervened in a particular way or he showed up in some circumstance. And we need to really embrace those things and <clears throat> have them close at hand so that in those times when faith becomes difficult, we can go back to those markers or those stones and remember, oh yeah, God did this, and God did that, and God did this, and he's going to do something again.
one of those for me was um, I was really fascinated by the idea of, of praying in tongues. And I, I've told some of this story before, I think, and <clears throat> but I didn't really understand how it worked. And so I thought, well, if um, when, it, when it happens to me, I should be able to just stand there and then God was going to start doing God's thing, and, and I would start praying in tongues. Well, that's not how it works. You still, and, and I mean, why reasonably intelligent people don't think of these things is always interesting, but you, you still have to use all of the gifts of speech that God gave you in order for this to happen. And I had, fortunately, someone had given me this tiny little book <clears throat> that talked about this. And I was reading it, and I'm like, oh, well, that makes so much sense. So, there was one, I decided I was going to test this out. So I was in the house by myself. Sally had gone to Indiana to take care of her parents. And I had taken Jared over to a friend's house. And, and believe it or not, this was on Halloween. <laughs> Just sort of adds a little element of interest to the story, right? It's on Halloween. Jared had gone to a friend's house. I was in the house by myself. I thought, perfect. If I make a fool of myself, there's nobody here to record it or to notice. So <clears throat> after much preparation, I sit down in my chair. I read my little book again, like, okay, got that, got that. And um, I thought, well, you know, at some point I've got to try this, right? So I open my mouth, start to make some noise, and bang, out comes this unknown language. Um, so <clears throat> what's interesting about that, and it was, I was telling this story to Elaine the other day, and uh, I, wasn't, I, I thought maybe it was a temporary thing. So when I woke up the next morning, I, I tried it again. I'm like, oh, well, it's still there. <laughs> so now I'm driving. It's the you know, middle of the morning, and I'm driving um, to pick up Jarrett at his friend's house. And I'm calling Sally on the phone while I'm driving there um, just to talk and see how things are going with her mom and dad. And I tell her this story of what had happened. And she goes, well, that's so weird. I had a dream last night. And in the dream, you were standing behind someone. You had your hands on their shoulders. And you were praying in tongues over them. And so for me, that has been that memory stone, that, that monument to that. Because I will tell you, you know, faith can take a hit sometimes. And you can stop believing stuff that you were certain about two weeks ago. I mean, it happens. And so, you know, there are times when, you know, it's, it's easy to think, I'm just making this up. This isn't God. And when that happens, I go back to this stone that was set up as a memory marker and remember 
that that wasn't a, just a coincidence that she had this dream. I, I don't believe that. I, I can't imagine many of you believe that either, hearing this story. And so that's why I think it's so important to have these things. You know, whether it's about something like that or whether it's simply about a time when, you know, God was just really intervened in your life. Uh, and you saw, you knew that he was at work in a situation. And so treasure that, you know, put that away somewhere that you can go back and get it when you need it. Because you will have these times when your faith is tested. And it's so wonderful to be able to go back and, and bring that up as a way to restore, you know, what you have lost, even if it's only temporary. And so then to look at the big idea for this particular passage is the last thing we'll do here. And it's, it's very simple. He's commending his church in Ephesus for contending for a pure faith. But he's telling them and he's challenging them to do it out of love, not just out of obligation. Right? And that's something that is so easy for us. We slip into this obligation mode. And we need to, to, to go back to remember the love that we did it with when we first started doing it. Amen? All right. If I could, uh, if the worship team would come back up, please. We're going to uh, take our time of communion now. And uh, one of the things that... Um, one of the things that we do during communion is we really want this to be a time when we sort of open things up for the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit might do whatever he chooses to do. Not that we could stop him, but we want, to, we want there to be a place for that to happen. And so as we take communion, uh, as I've done in the past, I just encourage you to to, you know, to maybe take a moment in silent prayer, ask the Lord if there's anybody that you ought to be going to, to pray with, to give a word to, whether it's, um, you know, something very specific or just a very general encouraging word um, or whatever. And if none of that applies to you, then we're just going to have a little extra time of worship uh, as, we, uh, as we listen to the praise team. So uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your words to the church at Ephesus, and I just pray that uh, 